Again, our scripture is taken from the 119th number of Psalms, and we'll look at verses 81 through 83. That's Psalms 119, verses 81 through 83. My soul longs for your salvation. I hope in your word. My eyes long for your promise. I ask, when will you comfort me? For I have become like a wineskin in the smoke, yet I have not forgotten your statutes. May God richly bless both the reading and the hearing of his holy word. One of the uh, benefits of uh, the Psalms, especially Psalms 119, is that since it's not a narrative concerning a particular historical event, there are truths that can be gathered and evaluated for their own substance and their own weight. In other words, we're not, now some psalms are more tightly constructed with a particular uh, historical point of reference. Uh, Some are more personal and they are written in a way where you follow it from top to bottom. But the beauty of Psalms 119, which the entire psalm, as we've mentioned before, is the longest chapter in the Bible. It has the most verses, and it has a single theme, and the single theme is the beauty and the trustworthiness of God's holy word. And as such, uh, what I've, I've singled out, I know there's the whole section that actually doesn't end until uh, verse 86, but I, I've singled out these verses, and primarily to get to the core of what's presented in verse 83. The way the psalmist describes himself in verse 83, he says that, um, for, but I, or for I have become like a wineskin in the smoke, which even commentators have, have, have commented on how extraordinary and how, how extreme that imagery is. And I mention this because certainly this is not a person that would describe themselves in this way is not the kind of person that you would want to invite to your Monday morning Bible study as you sit around a circle and read a verse and say, now what does this mean to me? He would be or she would be like a Debbie Downer. I mean, wow, where is the victory in your life? The idea is that this person feels so overwhelmed by the circumstances that they are in that they feel like they are about to be utterly destroyed. And I just wonder that if such a person made such a confession in a public gathering of Christians, how many people would try to put some oil on them or how many people would try to say, okay, you just need to pray and and how many of us would try to cast the demons out of them Because obviously the idea would be there is something defective about their faith. That there is something that they are lacking. uh, Because no way should you feel this down. And I would argue that as we see and and as we have seen through our journey through the various psalms. That there is a place for Christians who seem to be overwhelmed by the circumstances of life. And Christianity is not about what some have called in the 21st century the victorious Christian life. 
The Christian life is about the victory of Christ on our behalf. So what I want to do, that's the main point that we want to look at, but we'll, we'll work our way to this verse and taper it down. There are three things that we want to begin with in, in looking at three aspects of the gospel that are alluded to, especially in verse 81. Three aspects of the gospel that are alluded to. Number one, in verse 81, it indicates that the primary gift, or the language here, uh, undergirds the fact that the primary gift that the gospel gives is salvation. The primary gift that the gospel gives is salvation. It opens by saying, my soul longs, and notice the phrase, for your salvation. For your salvation. Because it's clear throughout Old and New Testament that if any human is saved, they are saved by God. And if they are saved, it is according to the plan of God. So therefore, salvation comes from God to man. Only man needs to be saved, but only God can do the saving. So therefore, it indicates, as we look at this, it indicates that the primary thing that the psalmist is holding on to is God's gift of salvation, which is also the gospel. So whatever else the gospel gives, and we do talk about the ancillary benefits of the gospel, but the primary gift of the gospel is the salvation of condemned souls. Now, everything else springs from that. This is what was so surprising about, and well, in fact, let me back up a little bit. I was speaking with a brother the other day, and we were kind of going over uh, the issue of miracles and our, what is the place of miracles in the life of the church today. And so I started off by saying, A, understand this, that miracles by their definition are rare. So they don't, that's, that's what makes it a miracle. You can't have a thousand births a day and call them all miracles. At some point, it ceases to be a miracle. It's just natural. So a miracle, what a miracle is, is by its very definition, it's rare. But what a miracle is, is when God intervenes. He has established the, the earth, the physical creation, with certain fixed laws so that we don't, have to, we don't have to pray for sunshine. Sunshine happens because God has ordered the physical universe in such a way that it's governed by the laws that he himself has put in place. Now, he is the one who controls them, but they are fixed, ordered laws that govern the natural world. Miracles are when God intercedes and ceases or oversteps one of the laws that he's put in place. I think it was um, G.K. Chesterton who talks about the miracle of Jesus turning water into wine, and he says that water is a part of the wine-making process, but it's, it's fermentation. It's, it takes place over a period of time, and you, but it, it includes wine. Making of wine includes water. But Jesus, being the Lord of life, bypassed one of the processes. He just took the water and turned it into wine. Now, that's a miracle because he bypassed the ordinary means, the ordinary laws that God has put in place. So we said, okay, so miracles are rare, and miracles is when God interrupts the order, the laws that he has put in place to govern the natural order. I said, now, when it comes to miracles in the Bible, 
The miracles were given first and foremost to the prophets or those that God had appointed as his spokespersons. So Moses, when he went before Pharaoh, God allowed him to work wonders to demonstrate and authenticate the fact that he was speaking on behalf of the God who has all power. So miracles are, were used as a means of affirming divine authority for otherwise fallen, flawed human beings. So it begins, we see it with Moses, but then also later with this establishment of national Israel. And the Lord called prophets, a school of prophets, to, to be his spokespersons, to declare the word of God to the people of God. And so to affirm that they were truly of God, God did two things. Number one, everything that he gave them to say came to pass. And that was one of the tests as to whether or not a prophet was authenticated. Now, if you are 90% at most things in this world, you're good. But if you were 90% prophet, you should be killed because God, you spoke on behalf of a God who was right 100% of the time. And so therefore, a prophet could not be wrong. So one of the ways to authenticate that a prophet was truly from God was that the words that he declared would come to pass. But the other way that the Lord authenticated the prophets was that he allowed them to perform certain miracles. And so Elijah and then Elisha and others, the Lord performs miracles through them, authenticating that they were spokesmen for the Most High God. Now we are also told in the Messianic prophecies in particular that when the Messiah comes, he will perform miracles. He will heal the sick. He will cause the blind to see and the lame to walk. Not as ends in themselves, but to demonstrate that this is the anointed prophet sent from the Lord. He is the Messiah. Because ultimately, the primary thing that the Messiah would do is forgive God's people of their sins. So here's what we get. Jesus begins his earthly ministry. He goes into the synagogue, preaches from Isaiah 61, where it says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to heal the sick, to give sight to the blind, to cause the lame to walk. And then he closes the book and he says, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your midst. And you know what he does? He goes and he does two things. He preaches that the kingdom of God is at hand, and then he performs miracles to demonstrate that the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, the greatest miracle that he came to perform was to save sinners from their sins. So here's what we get in Mark's gospel. In Mark chapter 2, I think it is, the beginning of the chapter, we see Jesus has been in the area. He's been preaching. He's been teaching. He's been healing people, healing all of these sick people. And then there's one man who was crippled. His friends wanted him healed, so they bring him to Jesus. The, the place is so jam-packed, they take off the roof, drop him down through the roof for Jesus to heal him. And when he gets an audience before Jesus, here's what Jesus says. Your sins are forgiven. 
and the, it, it was just like you guys are responding. The, the air of disappointment was palpable. What do you mean? We went through all of this work. And then Jesus reading their minds, knowing what was on their minds, Jesus says, which is it easier to say? Take up your bed and walk, which would in turn be a miracle that if this man who came in on a bed took up his bed and then began to walk, that is a miracle. Or is it easier to say your sins are forgiven? And then he just turns around just for the heck of it and says, now take up your bed and walk. My argument is this, that the greatest miracle was performed. In fact, what is, what is inseparable what is every other miracle that a Christian may or may not experience in this life will be left in this life? In other words, if the Lord takes you up off of a sick bed, you're still going to die unless you're here when he returns. Ask Lazarus. Lazarus was raised from the, grid, uh, from the grave and he died again. How do we know he died? Because he's not with us. He died. So Lazarus died even though he was raised from the grave. Every other miracle, if the Lord cures your body from an incurable disease, you will still lay off this body because the body in which you have the disease is mortal and it's perishable. And we are told in 1 Corinthians 15 that because of the resurrection of Christ, mortality must give way to immortality and what is perishable must give away to give way to what is imperishable. So even if the Lord, even if you were born lame and you learned to walk, when you see Jesus in that final day, you will not have the body that you couldn't walk in. Because we have another building not made by hands. So the one miracle that we will take with us to eternity is the miracle of being made a child of God. And so the gift, the greatest gift of the gospel is not the signs and wonders. The greatest gift of the gospel is God gives undeserving, corrupt, condemned sinners his gift of salvation. And it certainly resonates when he says your salvation because you could fill in the blank there and says, We've had all sorts of other salvations and none of them worked. The greatest gift of the gospel is the gift of salvation. That's the greatest gift that it gives. So if everything else is not fixed, that fades away. What the gospel promises is eternal salvation. And that itself is a gift of God. But the second thing that we see in verse 81 is that, or excuse me, in verse, in verse 82, he says, my eyes long for your promise. So the primary gift that the gospel gives is salvation, but the form in which the gospel is given is a divine promise. The form in which the gospel is given is a divine promise. We touched on this a little bit this morning, but, but God promises to, what he gives is salvation, and what he, the way that he guarantees it is that he promises to save. So that's why the writer can say, your, my, my eyes long for your promise. So what God gives, the greatest gift that he gives in the gospel is salvation. And salvation is for both body and soul. 
before the Lord returns, we only experience the salvation at the level of the soul, and sometimes that's fleeting, but we are saved. But how do we know that we will get everything else that the, God, that the gospel promised? And you know why we know? Because God promised it. Steve Brown puts it this way. He says, what God promises, he guarantees and the guarantee that he will deliver it is the very fact that he promised it. So here's what the writer says. I, he says, listen, I, I, I do long for your salvation, but I also long for your promises because the form in which the gospel comes to us is what God himself promises. Now, brothers and sisters, I would argue here that we have to be careful in the gospel that we offer the lost. Let us not go beyond what God himself promises. God has not promised to bring, to, to fix all of our little broken hearts. God has not promised to expunge all of the hurts necessarily that you will experience in this life. What God has promised is a soul that will be purged from its natural sinful condition. And God has promised a body that will endure throughout all eternity. Let's not go beyond what God promises. God has not promised rewards on our jobs. God has not promised that all of our neighbors will be lovable. God has not promised that all of our children will obey. But what he has promised is that he would save our souls and that he would grant us eternal bliss in his presence. And what he has given us until that is delivered is this promise. What do we know? How do we know that God will do what he says that he will do? It's because he promised. And brothers and sisters, that ought to be enough for us. That's why I like the way the writer says it in Hebrews when he talks about God making a promise to Abraham. And he says he couldn't swear by anything greater than himself. So by these two immutable things that God will not lie and that he does not change. So how do we know that God will deliver what he has promised? Because he promised it. And there is no change in him. And there is no deceit in him. And he does not lie. And so that's what the writer of Hebrews says is the anchor for our souls. Because in that, God has sent forth the forerunner who has gone behind the veil and he has prevailed in our place. So we know that God, the greatest gift of the gospel is salvation. And the primary form in which the, God, the gospel is given to us is by way of promise. And by the way, that is a one-way promise. It's not something that God promises if you there's no if you, if God has promised. What God has promised is salvation, eternal salvation for our souls and bodies that are suited to be with him for all eternity. God has promised us. And so I like that song that says, I'm standing on the promises of God, my Savior, or Christ, my Savior, standing on the promises of God, standing, standing, standing on the promises, and that's what we stand on. When all else fails, we stand on what God's word has declared, or what God himself has promised. And that brings us to a third feature of the gospel, the greatest, or the primary gift of the gospel is eternal salvation. 
and the form in which the gospel is given to us is by way of promise. And all the Old Testament saints had until the Lord came was God's word of promise and his character and his integrity that's tied to his promise. But in addition, we see that the promise of God is contained in God's word. Notice again in verse 82, he says, uh, my eyes long for your promise. Um, and he says, I ask, um, I ask, when will you comfort me? For I have become a wineskin in, uh, wine in the smoke, yet I have not forgotten your statutes. But in, at the bottom of verse 81, he says, I hope in your word. Your statutes in verse 83 but and I and I haven't forgotten your statutes, which is another way of talking about the the inscripturated word of God. And then in verse eighty one, my hope is in your word. Now, God's word contains His promise, and what His promise is is salvation. This is why I, I was listening to a podcast earlier uh, or yesterday, and brother was arguing against this strict law gospel distinctive that we get from Luther at the time of the Reformation, and I kind of push back against that. We do need to understand that God hasn't just given us his word. He's given us his revealed word, which tells us his law, but the primary purpose for the giving of God's inscripturated word is to give us the gospel. Let's look in uh, John's gospel, chapter 20. And the Apostle John makes this very point uh, in talking about uh, the ministry of Jesus and how there were many other things that he said Jesus did, uh, but the things that he wrote are for a particular reason. In, verse, in chapter 20, uh, beginning, let's see, beginning in verse 30, it says, Now Jesus did many other signs, in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Now, we could say that about the whole Bible. There are many things that are recorded God tells us the manner in which he created the physical universe. God tells us how he called the people out of nowhere and, and created a people. God tells us he even reiterates the law. The law that was written on the heart of Adam, God wrote it on stone. So God does give us historical narrative. He gives us many things, but the primary reason for the giving of the scriptures is because Jesus says you search the scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life, but the scriptures are about me. So the primary purpose for the revelation of God's holy word is to reveal his saving grace in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So therefore, again, the greatest gift that the gospel gives is salvation. The primary form in which the gospel is contained is by way of promise. God promises what he will do. And the form that, or excuse me, the, the promise that God gives to save us is contained in his word. So the word is a container of God's gift of life through the person of Christ. 
And therefore, if all we can get out of the scriptures is do's and don'ts, then we have not understood the scriptures. Any law book can give you that. But the Bible has been given to us to reveal God's saving grace through the person and work of Jesus Christ. So therefore, the the hope for the Christian is in what God has inscripturated in in his holy word. So again, here are three aspects of the gospel. The primary gift that the gospel gives is salvation. The form in which that gospel is, is presented to us is by way of promise, and the container for the promise is God's inscripturated word. The word of God. Now, one of the reasons that is important is so that we don't look elsewhere other than what the word of God says about the gift of salvation in his son as to to determine whether or not we're truly saved. Well, that brings us to a second area of thought, and that is we have just set forth the three objective factors or features of the gospel. It is God's promise contained in God's word about God's salvation. All of that is, what I mean by objective, that is outside of us. God's promise of salvation is outside of us. He speaks that into us. God's gift of salvation, his his promise to save is outside of us. In the manner in which he saves us is outside of us. Um, Remember, uh, I think it was uh, uh, R.C. Sproul who said a number of years ago, someone came to him and said, you know, are you saved? Brother, are you saved? He says, yes. He says, well, how long have you been saved? He says, since about 2,000 years ago. And the idea is salvation is God's gift in what has taken place outside of us. So those are what that's what I mean by objective. It's apart from us. It's outside of us. But there is a twofold subjective response to the objective truth of the gospel. A twofold response. One, as we see it in verse uh, 81 and also repeated in uh, well repeated in 81, we long for what God has promised. In other words, everywhere that God has given the gift of saving grace, he has also created a longing for the grace that he gives. We read it in our responsive reading. Uh, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. If you hunger and thirst after righteousness, because it is because God in his grace has tuned your heart to hunger and thirst after righteousness. No one naturally hungers and thirsts after righteousness. So therefore, our subjective response to the objective gospel is to long for what God himself gives us in the promise of the gospel and in his salvation. He says again, in in verse 81 that I long, I long for your salvation. And then in verse 82, my eyes long for your promise. As it reads in the the old uh, King James, which is a translation of a phrase that basically literally means, I faint for this. My soul faints for your salvation. My eyes faint for your hope, or they, they long for it. They, they long for your promise. 
So therefore, our subjective response to God's objective gift of the gospel is to long for what the Lord himself has promised to give. Here's the second subjective response to it. We not only long for what God promises and has set forth in his scripture, but we also anticipate and hope for the full possession of what the gospel itself promises. We anticipate and hope for, what, for the full possession of all that the gospel promises. He says again in verse, um, in, in verse 82, my eyes long for your promise. I ask, when will you comfort me? You see, in other words, we long, the soul longs for what God promises. We know and we need to hear it over and over again that our sins are forgiven because of the work of Christ. But we know that as long as we are in these bodies, we wrestle and we struggle. And so not only do we, do we long for what he has desired, but we anticipate we anticipate a body that will not be wracked by sin and disease. We long for a time when we will not, and we anticipate it, and by anticipating and hoping for, that's not wishful thinking, that's knowing this is what God has promised, and we anticipate its full delivery. We hope in what God has declared in his holy word. Our hoping is not, going, is not going to make it come true. The fact that God has promised it is what will make it come true. We mentioned Job last Sunday night, and I think Job is another, is a, is a good example even here. That Job, when he came to a better realization of himself, he says, even if the skin worms eat my body, even if I die, I know that I shall see God. He says, if you kill me, slay me. And I'll come forth because what God has promised cannot be overthrown by the external circumstances that happen in life. Now those are, that's, those are two things. We long for what God has promised and we anticipate the full delivery of what God has promised. But that brings us to a third thing and that's what brings us actually to verse 83. That as we in these bodies, our existential experience seldom resembles the eternal privileges and the prize that we possess in the gospel by faith. Our external circumstances seldom resemble what we know that we possess eternally by faith in the gospel. Here's what we know by faith in the gospel that God sees me as if I have not sinned. But that's not my experience. My, my experience is continued sin. And so my real life experience in, in flesh and blood on planet earth, my real life experience is with the body that slows down not every year now, but it seems like every month. There's something new that's not working. Sometimes we get up, my wife and I will say, you know what, this is just hurting for no particular reason. It's not like I hit it on anything. It's not like I bumped anything. I just woke up hurting. 
as a reminder that the sentence of death is in us. And so sometimes the frustration that we get is what theologians call the tension between the already and the not yet. We are already children of God. We are already, according to Paul, seated in heavenly places in the person of Christ Jesus. We are already heirs of eternal glory and joint heirs with Christ. We are already justified before the throne room of justice. We are all of those things. But in the meantime, our bodies and our life experiences may feel like wineskins that are being destroyed by smoke. In this particular situation, it seems that the psalmist is dealing with with the, the antagonism of enemies. And we don't know if David is the one who wrote all of Psalms 119, but we know David, every time one enemy was taken care of, here comes another one. And if they didn't come from the Philistines, they came from his own children. And so here's the reality. God has promised us, and he's put it in scriptures, that we will be saved. We will be saved from the penalty of sin. We will be saved from the power of sin. We will be saved from the very presence of sin. But our right now earthly experiences don't always feel like that. Our right now experiences seem like we Every step seems to go backwards instead of forward. And sometimes our existential experiences, they just make us feel like we don't feel like we are saved. We, we wouldn't love us, so we can't see how God would love us. Sometimes we measure the things that are going on around us and wonder whether or not he still cares. And we put God to the test on things that have nothing to do with our salvation, Right? We'll say, Lord, if you love me, then why not this? Then how come I'm that? Everything, but Lord, because you love me, you save me. And so here's the point. It is not our subjective experiences that determines whether or not we are saved. What determines our salvation is God's objective promise that he has put in the scriptures about his son. And as long as his son is accepted at the right hand of the father, whoever believes these truths, you too shall be seated with him in heavenly places. Your losses, your crosses, your difficult spots, can't, he, he, he didn't say that they won't come, but it does not negate what God has promised and what he's given The objective gospel is outside of us, but inside of us is a world of doubt and uncertainty and ups and downs. And so I like the way he ends verse 83 by simply saying, he says, yes, for I have become like a wineskin in the smoke, yet I have not forgotten your statutes. I don't feel good. But I remember what you said. I don't feel victorious. But I remember what you said. I feel like the enemy is getting the upper hand right now. But you said. And so therefore, Lord, 
my hope is in your promise because in your promise is my salvation. Brothers and sisters, I pray that we would always recognize the objectivity of what God has promised and what God has done for us in the person and work of Christ. And I pray that we would be nurtured in such a way that what we would long for is what God himself has promised. And that our hope and our anticipation is the full delivery of what he said in spite of what we see. And even if our bodies feel like wine skin left over in the smoke, know that even if this earthly tabernacle is dissolved, which it will be dissolved, we have another building, not made by hands, but eternal in the heavens. And so as this outward man is perishing, the inner man is being renewed day after day so that these light afflictions are but for a moment and they will give way to a greater eternal weight of glory. Amen. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we do thank you again for the gift of another Lord's Day. And we thank you for speaking, speaking to us through your word penetrating those barriers that so easily rise up against the knowledge of what you have given us in Christ. Let us not be overwhelmed by the things that are going on around us, nor the uncertainties that can rise from within. But let us remember your word, the word that will not fail. Heaven and earth shall pass away before one jot of your word fails and your word centers on your gift of salvation in Jesus Christ. Deepen our hunger for that. Deepen our longing for that. And let our hope rest in what you have promised. Thank you, Father, for this day. We pray that as we disperse, that your word would still reign and reverberate within our hearts. We ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. Would you please